Hello and Happy New Year, friends and foggers. Welcome back to your favorite podcast at the intersection of faith and fear. This is the fear of God. For all of your fear of God needs, be sure to visit us on the web at thefearofgodpodcast.com. Speaking to you right now is one of your hosts, Nathan Rouse, and typically with me is fellow co-host Reed Lackey. And what do you know? He decided to show up this time. Reed. What's up, man? Happy hey, New buddy. Year. Oh, my Happy New gosh. Year to you, brother. Hey, uh, man. It's been a while. I can't believe it's it. It's been a minute. I know. Yeah. I know. You know. Time simultaneously feels like it fast-forwarded and crawled through everything. Yeah. It's weird. Yeah. It's weird. I'm equally thrilled and saddened to see you right now um but well, okay i'm, I'm kidding i'm always thrilled to see you um <laughs> reed we have a guest and you're gonna do us the honor of inviting them I'm on momentarily yes. but I, I need to rib you for a second um, what are you talking ribbon and what? possibly set a tone that you're gonna oh, love no. right here oh, so oh my gosh today today is an interview an interview episode we love our interview episode episodes um but the last interview we published with ethicist david gushy i don't know maybe you saw the notes about how I was going to ask super softball questions about LGBTQ <laughs> inclusion in the life of faith and of abortion and about the American church's alignment with this country's history of racial terror. And maybe you got a little squirrely, you know, but, but I think I think I got the last laugh because if you're minding your calendar, I'm really setting a tone here. We are recording on the one year anniversary of when I'll say it domestic terrorists fueled by a delusional doofus stormed the very seat of power where government sits to quote Hamilton, how lucky we are to be alive right now. <laughs> Welcome to the fear of God, 2022, everybody like just, <laughs> all right. Yes. Got to get that out of my system yeah. and welcome you back. And okay. rib you for I, not being the last one. Yeah. I could keep going, but in no, that that's spirit, like, it's all right. It's like, all right. No, no, no. <laughs> You've done <laughs> no, enough already. <laughs> uh, in that spirit, Reed, why don't you invite our guest onto the show? <laughs> oh my gosh! I well, yes, that certainly uh, was a hell of an introduction. So right now, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go ahead and welcome on uh, my dear friend uh, Natasha Dion. Natasha, it is such a privilege to have you. How are you doing? Hey, Reed, as soon as he said that, I was like, okay, and here comes our honorable black person. Oh, oh, no. <laughs> I was like, great. I was like, no, no, it is no. January 6th. I was like, oh. I was like <laughs> no, it was perfect. I'm laughing. Yeah, awesome. I think it's hilarious. And I oh, love awesome. this already. I love oh, it. That's awesome. Nathan and Reed that's awesome. Great. We're just like, hey, so well, I do. I like shattering sort of taboos. And Reed's always like, don't do that, Nathan. But. I had, yeah. I never tell you not to. I, I know, just go I around behind you, you picking cringe. up the shards of glass yes. and holding yes. them in my exactly. hands. And, and you get cuts yeah, and then yeah, exactly. like blue, they heal, you know. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Almost right yeah, away. Look at that. And then see? It's, you know, Already. And, and then, yeah. And see then. I read yeah, the I material. Want, that's right. I did too. I wander behind you just being like, okay, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Everything's going to be fine. <laughs> uh, some, sometimes it is. Sometimes it is. But 
Natasha, sincerely, <clears throat> thank you for carving out some time. Can I give you some? Yes. Can I give you some bona fide uh, applause here for a second? I want to tell our listeners who you are. Okay. So okay. listen, ladies and gentlemen, this is I'm gonna I've got a copy of of your book right here in my hands. It's called right Perishing. Uh, it's her second novel. And I just want to read the back of this because this is intimidating and lovely. It says, Natasha Dion is an NAACP Image Award nominee, a practicing criminal attorney, and a college professor. I'll also add she's an activist, a wife, and a mother. That's incredible. She's a Pamela Krasny Moral Courage Fellow. Dion is the author of the critically acclaimed debut novel, Grace, which I've also read and also love which was named a best book by the New York Times. Dion has been awarded fellowships by Pan America, Prague Summer Program for Writers, Dickinson House in Belgium, the Breadloaf Writers Conference, and the Virginia Center for the Creative Arts. And I am privileged to know her just in the real because we went to church together a few years ago. And I'm proud to call her friends. Natasha, we're really, really thankful you were able to carve out some time to be with us tonight. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Reed. I'm so excited to be here. I'm trying to keep all my smiles. My face is like expanding. I'm making all these weird looks and I'm like okay. trying to keep it together. I need like Botox my whole face so I could just, be so- yes. Yeah. yes. Yeah. But it doesn't, I have no Botox. I can't sit here and just be like, so I'm like, ah, it's Reed. Oh my God. That's, that's <laughs> oh, a lot of girl. A lot too, out. yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh Natasha, God. I want to echo Reed and welcome you. Thank you so much for carving out some time and being on the show. Um, I I want to take the baton for a moment, and we, so you and I are meeting for the first time, and and <laughs> listeners are like, "Holy cow, Nathan, you made that opening for a first time person." Yes, I did, <laughs> um, and I I, I trusted uh, uh, the the spirit and the moment, but something we. Whenever we have a first time guest on, and this is my opportunity as well as listener opportunity to get to know you a little bit. So the perishing wouldn't um, be categorically horror, but that is typically where we focus, though it is definitively sort of genre, uh, mild thriller in places. And I'll let you categorize it as we go. But this is this is kind of a twofold question. One, as a fan, we'll frame it that way, not necessarily as a writer. What got you into genre material and or, and this is all one question, are there, are, are, do you like horror? Are there horror films you'd point to as, hey, these are, these are benchmarks for me. Um, so, so kind of address those as you would. Sure. Let me start with your, with your first question, which is a great question. What got me into writing sort of speculative fiction is what they call it, right? Okay. It's okay, like yeah. fantasy, a little bit. Of, it's just other it was in one word marketing it it was the marketing <laughs> department like for <laughs> i'll be uh, and i've and i've told this and i know my publisher like cringes when i do but it's the truth i wrote a story that that i thought was plausible impossible and it was actually based on biblical stories that never made sense to me you know when i would ask questions in sunday school like okay so elijah is just like he just swept up like that's how elisha was there like how did he just disappear or when jesus is standing there and peter says you know you're the christ and then he says to him you know you know, on this rock, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And then it goes on in some of the gospels to say that there are some people standing here who will not Mm. taste death 
until they see me coming in my glory, which is like the second coming. So I'm like, well, if they're not going to die, if they're not dead, because <laughs> he says, surely I say to you, there's some people standing mm-hmm. here. I'm like, where are they? You know, other times that mm-hmm. he says, mm-hmm. surely I say to you, was like sitting there with Judah saying, surely I say to you, one of you is going to betray right, me. Right. And then in mm-hmm. this moment, so I'm like in Sunday school and I was little, I was like, okay, so where are those people? Did they die? Well, it doesn't really <laughs> mean, I was like, no, but it says, Right. So I mm-hmm. like questions mm-hmm. like that. I love that. Yeah. Enoch, who was taken up by God in the Old Testament, mm-hmm. or Enosh, however you pronounce it. Yeah. Like there's mm-hmm. these moments where people just sort of disappear out of the Bible. So I was mm-hmm. just curious and I said, what if it's actually true? What if I take this literally? What if it's actually true? Because I have no good explanation. And that there are some people who are simply taken up through time and not. Mm dead but placed somewhere else in time Hmm. because time is a continuum created by god god started time but what if Mm -hmm. that's what happened to him what if there are people that are still here and maybe what if everlasting life is life after life is returning here Mm. like what if that's the measure of the 600 or 900 years that someone lived you know um so Mm. i just Mm. wow i love that added a creative what I thought was possible. So for me, it wasn't, I didn't try to write fiction. It's just what I believe is part of my faith and it's part of me because also as a criminal defense attorney and being in some very difficult situations and even as a church leader, I've seen miracles. I've seen, Mm -hmm. you know, like I can't explain them. I can't say it'll happen to one person or not someone else. I've seen them and I can't discount that. You know, because I know that they exist, things that defy natural explanation. Sure, sure. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, So when I was writing this book, I thought, what if I gave explanations to these things that I don't understand? Like why when I meet somebody for the first time, I feel like I've known them forever. Like when I Mm. met my husband, I met him as soon as I met eyes with him. I'd never met him before, but I knew I knew that he was a person that was there to pick me up. We were married within six months. We've been married wow. for many years. Like yeah. I knew we were holding hands before we got to the elevator. So moments like that, I just, I think there's something else that we don't know about. And even if you're just totally into science, Albert Einstein says that, you know, we know like one billionth of what's actually going on in the world. And he was into science and physics and so I just wanted to say, this is my guess. This, what if I get made a guess and then I made it interesting for me to read? So of course, being, because I'm not, a, I'm not with a Christian pub- publisher, I'm with a standard mm-hmm. publisher. So they said, uh, you know, you, we can't really say that, Natasha. This is, this is fantasy. This is, you know, horror, thriller, or science fiction, but it's not real. But for me, I can't separate the real and the religious or the spiritual part of me. I I walk in my life integrated. So this was like an expression of it creatively. When did, um, is the book, you know, it is formally out because I read it on Kindle. So when, when did it release just recently, right? In the fall? Uh, Yeah, November 9th, but it had a lot of pre-publicity, pre-release buzz. So it just sort of, it felt like it was out for a long time for like three months before it came out. Yeah. 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 And when did, is it Grace, the initial uh-huh. book? Grace. When did that release? That was 2016. 
That's amazing. Um, no, that that's that's really awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, the genesis uh, explicitly of the book we'll we'll get to here in a minute. The perishing and um, speculative fiction. I'll have to remember that because I have heard that phrasing before. But you know, categories categories of genre are very it's it's branding and marketing to your point is like trying to figure out because i even today reed and i were talking i was like it's not horror but it has some fantastical slash occasional thriller aspects to it so it is speculative fiction does make some sense to me um well well tag in a little bit there on are, are you are you a fan of horror do you like horror do you have any particular favorites that you would identify for us and our listeners Okay, so my favorite ever was Evil Dead. Oh boy! Like, oh, that's awesome! Like that's one of awesome. the first ones because it was the first horror movie that I sat through the entire movie from beginning to end and just screamed. And I was <laughs> actually with my church people, the youth group, and we were oh, wow. watching. <laughs> we were watching. Awesome. I was like, I was terrified. I was terrified. That's it was the awesome. first horror movie that I saw all the way through and so it, it remains my favorite awesome that's that awesome. is awesome uh yeah we definitely have had fun with the raimi evil dead series over the course of the the podcast um the other sort of big big tentpole question we try to ask first time guests and you can be as superficial and 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 silly as you want in in your response you can be as sort of emotional spiritual psychological uh um serious as you want um but but we are a show that deals with and, and our mantra on the show is uh, um discussing what scares us to find what saves us and so i i would inquire of you natasha having just met you what what is what is or what are things that scare you mm. things that scare me sincerely are is my children being out without me and worrying and if something happens mm. sure, like, sure. Uh, mm. you know we have the shooting here the school shooting at saugus high yeah um and i just had this is going to be weird and i've never told anybody but since it's reading <laughs> since it's you guys i'm just gonna sure, yeah. see where it goes why <laughs> not so um so i took my, <laughs> my daughter i took my daughter out of school when she was in, going into the seventh grade and i just remembered i just i just felt strongly that i mean there was nothing wrong with school i'm not like one of those homeschool moms like oh go homeschool i'm not like i'm so not that person i'm like for public school get in there do it but i felt strongly that i needed to take her out because i knew she wasn't performing at the level that she should and at the time, hmm. I was getting awards for teaching, and I felt so terrible that my own kid was not doing well when I was like being awarded all these awards for teaching. I was like, I'll teach her. And I did. And I remember she was supposed to go to Saugus that year and rejoin hmm. her. And I felt just this, like the same way that I felt that I knew my husband when I saw him, that I was going to marry him. I knew that she shouldn't go there, that it wasn't safe for her. And I went there. I'm an, that's my alma mater. So it wasn't, huh. and I hmm. never, it never crossed my mind before. So when just a few, three months in, they had the school shooting and the four children were shot and a couple died. Hmm. I did for a second think, I wonder if, you know, hmm. I wonder if it meant something. And then, and I say that in two ways because it, it'll, I know it can sound wrong. I'm not saying that people who let their children go there, sure. like bad parents who sent them there. Sure. Right. Right. 
What I mean is, for me, it was validation that I have to trust whatever that instinct is that's telling me to do things. Mm. For so long, mm. I've always felt that I'm just loopy. I'm a little bit weird and crazy, which I think that I am, but I've written books about my crazy and people, <laughs> you know, so, but it was, for me, it was just a moment where I had to say, you know, I got to really trust this thing, this voice that's telling me it wasn't enough that I was married that in the way that I was, and I knew that he was my husband, I knew we'd have children, two children, I knew, you know, like all these things. Um, because I have no really religious basis for any of that. Like, I, I'm not one of those people like, oh, prophet so-and-so or prophet or whatever. Sure, sure. Um, but it was like the first time that I thought, I need to start listening more hmm. to whatever that voice is that's inside me that's helping me. Thank you for sharing that. I, I, I... I have three children myself and, and, uh, yeah, those are the, the concern for, and I, I'll share this with you in, in solidarity with your story. I shared with Reed a few weeks ago. So I, I, you know, we're, we're, we're friends now, so we can share these, these wacky things that go on in our heads. Sometimes I don't, I'll, I'll use an example here. There's a movie called take shelter that we covered on the show a couple of years ago. Mm. And I love this movie. And it's, it's, you know, if I had to make a list reads a big list guy, but I, I'm not really, but if I had to make a list, it's probably a top 10 favorite for me, but the film is about an adult male who's married, has a child and he starts having these sort of apocalyptic style visions that are, but the way the movie is crafted, it's very real worldish, if that makes sense. It's not, it, it's not the fantastical type that you can, as a viewer, disassociate yourself with. Well, in, in real life, I have a few, maybe a few times a year, very debilitating nightmares about my children's safety. Wow. And, and that's one movie, you know, we cover a, a, a smorgasbord of macabre on this show. But that is one movie that I I'm glad I didn't, but in the watching of it, the first time I almost walked out of, I was like, this is, this is too close to him. Cause it's kind of about that. Like this, yeah. this existential dread, this man feels about his ability to care for or not his family. And so anyway, I say that to say, I resonate a little bit with your story there just because those, those feelings are real and, yeah. and, Thank you, you know, yeah. It is. I'm gonna have to watch that movie. Take shelter, freak myself <laughs> yes. out. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. <laughs> and, and that's what that's one of the amazing things about it is that it is about fear and anxiety. But where it goes, the tone of it is uh, remarkably comforting and inspiring. By the time it gets to the end, without really giving you any sort of "Hey, this is what all of it is about." It's very esoteric in that <clears> way that you can you can kind of draw your own conclusions from what you're seeing and from what the characters are experiencing but but i'm always and the other the other thing that i'll say about take shelter is it is one of the strongest there are many there are many many strong portraits of marriage in film and tv but it's one of my favorite there's without spoiling specifics but viewers of the film will know what i'm referring to there's a moment late in the film where a character experiences a breakdown and it's a very public breakdown and the the interaction that this character who experienced a breakdown has with their spouse at that moment following it is one of the most 
I, I, I get emotional every time I think about it. It's a really, really wonderful film. You should, you should see yeah. it. I highly, highly recommend it. It's wonderful. And, and Natasha, thank you for sharing that. I, I read and I being the, the close peers we are, I, I am aware of that, that incident that happened a few years ago. And, and, you know, um, I, my oldest is 13 and it is not, she just got a phone for the first time on her 13th birthday. We, we did, we were those mean parents that held out, but, uh, you know, I'll get occasional texts from her. We're in a modified lockdown. It's like, Oh, well, cool. This is a great world we're creating for our children here. Uh, so, so no, I, I totally resonate with that sort of anxiety from a parental standpoint. Read what, what, where you, now that we've, now that we've, you know, <laughs> made ourselves sad as parents. Like, no, no, where should so, we go next? Take, well, bring us and, up, Reed. <laughs> well, and you know, and I, I, yeah, I would also say, like, just echoing for an inch on that and sympathizing with all of those sentiments. That you know, I feel like it's always been, I think, the burden of parents that you know, a part of your heart is living outside your body always. And so, and I'm not the, I'm not the first person to phrase it that way, but you're, you're constantly in fear that something just absolutely unthinkable is going to happen. And I think part of how you prepare them for the world uh, and, and exactly how you teach them to navigate the world is crucial in terms of not only your own personal philosophy, but teaching them how to develop their own, their own individual philosophy, their own personal outlooks on things. And that's, that's really tough. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, we could spend the whole time talking about there, but as I'd mentioned, not only are you, um, a writer, this, this will hopefully be a very clunky segue, but a segue nonetheless, not only are you a writer, but you're also involved in so many other impressive. I mean, we have had discussions about many superhero movies on this show. We have never had an actual real world superhero on the show before. Uh (laughs) So, but, um, I do want to talk a little bit. I mean, we could we could saturate the entire conversation with just, you know, how much work you do, as we mentioned, practicing criminal uh, defense attorney, professor going to Yale this summer. Proud of you. That's amazing. But um, I would love to hear a little bit more. We could talk about a ton of different things, but I'd love for you to tell our listeners a bit about the Redeemed Project, because um, I'm, I'm really uh, very moved and impressed by everything that I see developing about that. So could you share some of what that is with the listeners? Uh, and, then, and then we'll move on to some other things. Ah, oh, thanks, Ree. Wow, like superhero. I'm like, okay, who are you talking about? I'm saying, first of all, like, I don't know, I don't know. Um, yeah. So, so the Redeem Project. So, you know, the best way, I guess, to to kind of capture it is, you know, you've heard of the Innocence Project, where basically they find people who have who've been innocently convicted. Uh, or who are innocent of a crime and then they help get them out. So Redeem Project actually takes it a step further because our clients actually did it. They actually did the crimes that they've been convicted of. And we ask the governor and we ask courts to have mercy. So Mm -hmm. if someone did crimes, you know, say they were 18 years old, now they're a 50 year old man or a 40 year old or a 36 year old woman, who did these things at a certain age or while they were drug addicted, you know, they get that stays on their record for the rest of their lives, unless they go to the Mm -hmm. court and ask them to remove it or ask them to get off, for instance, probation early, things like that. Um, For our clients that are in prison, we ask the governor to release them early and they're serious Mm -hmm. crimes. We don't deal with um, sex crimes. So anything with rape, molestation, 
but we have represented clients who have killed somebody. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, serious crimes like that, robbery, we have, I have personally won clemency, gotten people out of um, prison, um, mm-hmm. which is something that I'm proud to do because I believe that we can show mercy. We don't have to have yeah. human beings in cages. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, and sometimes, and a lot of times we make mistakes. So that's what I do. I say, you know, this person made a mistake at this particular age and they're not all murders. There's only been a few murders or a couple. One is too many that came out wrong. One is too many. <laughs> no, I understand. We, no, I understand. we, we no, got I understand. it. You're good. Yeah, yeah, wow. we understand. You're safe and among friends. <laughs> like, yes. you know, there's only been, like one is, so, I'm, so it's not saying that. So we work with victims as well, but it's people who have, sure. who have said, you know, there's nothing else I can, I'm so sorry. I did this horrible thing. Um, but usually it's people who have drug crimes, DUIs, mm-hmm. things like that. Um, and we help them to move on from the stigma of their past. So let me give you an example. Flight attendant, say she works for Alaska. She want, and she has a DUI in California. She can no longer fly to Canada because you can't have a felony going into Canada, any kind of felony. Or if you yeah. work in the movie industry and you work with explosives. So we've had clients, that, a lot of clients from Hollywood who do like um, special effects. They can't do their job anymore because they can't handle firearms. And they can't do it properly. And we know what happened recently with Alec sure. Baldwin. But all of those right, things require right. licensing that you can't do from anything that you may have gotten a felony for at any age. So we hope to help people bring families back together again, help them to mm. be able to earn money and things like that. Well, that's that's awesome. awesome. Yeah. That's amazing. I'm, I'm really grateful to hear about that. Now, you may have said this. Is, is this a, a long-running project at this point? Or it's relatively new? Or... Yeah, so it's relatively new. We we began in 2018 with 25 okay. clients, um, yeah. and we were able to clear more than 50 records. Um, so now what we're doing is we have, um, you know, the pandemic hit as soon as we start launched the Clemency Project. And we mm. went from six clients down to three, and now we have one, and we're just finishing the project with this last person. Mm. And he is someone... Um, who murdered someone when he was 18. He he shot at someone mm. on the street and accidentally killed his best friend. Oh, wow. 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 He was given a life sentence um, for that. So he has to live in prison and he's been there since for the last 17 years. He was wow. never in trouble wow. with the law. Wow. He was sure. about to get married. His wedding was the next, was not, was like a few months away. His five-year-old was about to turn six, like that next, that weekend. He had all these things going for him. He was at a house party and his friend um, called him, said, we just got into a fight with someone at this house party. We need help. So he was like, we'll go, I'll go help him beat him up. So he gets in the back seat. Somebody he didn't know who was in the front because they were in somebody else's car, puts a gun in his lap and sort of history he accidentally kills his best friend goodness gracious wow oh lord and i know we're i I, you know i know we're gonna go to several different places here but i i just i I feel so much uh when i hear about that work and i hear about that project and i think it's so crucial that we remember you know like when we hear a scripture like 
Christ saying, you know, like I was naked and you clothed me. And then he says, I was in prison and you visited me. I think there's a certain version of things that we like to imagine like, oh, but, you know, the, the nice ones, the easy stories, the low key things like that's it. What convicting to me, and I believe uh, sacred thoughtfulness to consider like, no, no, no. You think Christ wouldn't advocate for these people? You think he's not advocating for us at this very moment in this, as we're having this conversation? All the stuff that we have in our past. And yes, maybe, you know, the comparison game is so futile because sure, maybe we don't have that story, or maybe we don't have that other story, or maybe we don't have this story. But the image has always been tremendously encouraging and compelling to me of Christ as our advocate, of Christ, uh, you know, presenting, saying, like, yes, I know, I, I know, but the plea for mercy and the, the, the pain and sweat and tears and blood to, to accomplish the mercy, then so much of that wrapped up in what Christ does for us. So I just, um, it means a lot to hear about that project and to know that it exists. And, and, and it was uh, important to me. I know we're talking about a lot of different things, but it was important to me that, that the listeners get to hear about some of that, what you do, because I just, uh, it's very, very meaningful. And thank you and, and your entire board of directors who helps uh, you with that, that uh, it's, it's really, really powerful stuff. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you so much, Reed. And I just wanted to say that, like, sometimes when I'll tell that, tell that story, you mm -hmm. know, people, because I can get emotional when I'm talking about it, um, because redeemed isn't about what somebody deserves. Like our mm -hmm. client who killed this doesn't deserve to be free. That's what mm -hmm. redemption is mm -hmm. about. We don't deserve it. It's not, yeah. you know, and mm -hmm. I've been a victim of violent crime. My father was murdered. So I'm not coming in like, you know, this has never happened. I'm so far away from it. Right. It actually right. changes who we are. And when, and I've gone to churches and tried to raise money for the Redeem Project. And yeah. the yeah. whole idea is like, no, we can't do that. We have a prison ministry. Mm. Um, and I wanna say this, especially if there's people who work at churches, prisons are not jails. Jails are mm. those places that are local, that are easy to get to, because usually that person has to be picked up by bus and brought to court. Um, attorneys have to get to them. It's for its ease. Prisons are mm. usually three hours, six hours away from any city where most people live. There's right. like in California, there are California state prisons and none of them are convenient. So mm -hmm. if you go into a jail to do a Christmas special at your local lockup, that is not a prison. That is a jail, it's a holding facility. And I would encourage, especially Christians in this world where you think somebody's going to the prison, because we're not. There's never been a moment where I've gone there where it's just full of people, Christians right. or family. These people mm -hmm. are there alone for the most part. Mm -hmm. And like I said, they don't, and I'm not saying that they deserve it, but they are alone and they need us. And when people, mm -hmm. even the most liberal of people think about crimes that they want to help people with, it's usually marijuana. You're not talking mm -hmm. about yeah. robberies. You're not talking right. about murder, things like that. And we're not there. As Christians, we're not there. Right. No one is there. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I would encourage, I'm not saying that they have to help Natasha and Redeem Project, but I'm saying if you make that drive to your local prison and visit somebody, it would be, you wouldn't know how empty and hollow those halls are and what Jesus was talking about. If you think it's mm -hmm. just a jail where you pay your traffic ticket, you're not even in the same planet. 
Well, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, (laughs) Um, so, so listen, Natasha, you, you wear a number of hats. You've got, a bunch of irons have in the fire. No, Nathan. No. Like, oh my no, god! No, 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 no. it down. No, oh, no, 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 no. I'm gonna, I'm gonna employ. Uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna play a track from Reed's favorite band, Clunky Segway, and get us to <laughs> get us. <laughs> I have all the greatest hits on Clunky yes, Segways. Yes, yes. Yeah, oh, like, great band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Their, their, Christmas hits are really excellent. Um, but, but no, because, because what's fascinating to me about just, just hearing you tell these stories is like what. Uh, if I can frame it this way, what the hell got you into writing creative fiction? Like, like, so, so the question I was going to ask you was about inspirations and influences, and I'm still very interested in that, but chart for us a little bit. Um, and you're really gonna, you're really gonna make me mad if you were like, I just, I just got a wild hair one day and <laughs> took to this, took to this hobby of churning out books. And I'm like, oh, um, so, so no, talk a little bit about, you know, kind of how that, the, 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 the sort of evolution or genesis of that branch of your, you know, kind of, uh, energy and output. And on top of that, or interwoven into it, cite for us, maybe some creative influences or inspirations that, uh, uh, you know, kind of have helped you along. Sure. So, okay. So I'm going to try to keep it light. I'm going to try. Sure. No, <laughs> do not. No, that you is are, not you the are point. safe. Yeah. That is not the point. <laughs> like, oh, no. No, no, no. You are great. You know, it's you like reading those because we went to the same church. So <clears throat> everything is like happy, family. And I feel like I'm like, what is that? What is that show called? You know, the the upside down. Um, oh, Stranger Things. Stranger yeah, Things. Yeah. Stranger things. Yes. Um, yeah. So I'm like in the upside down of church. I work when people are doing wrong things. So I'm representing people. Yeah including leaders doing some very wrong things. So I don't get to see the fun part where everybody's like, oh, Christmas. I'm like, okay, <laughs> drinking too much. Are they about to drive? Okay, now they That's like, <laughs> so I don't ever have the good, lighthearted stuff. So good. I'm like, That's oh, good. I'm going to bring down the moment again. <laughs> no, no, nothing has been brought down. It is okay. all right where it's supposed to be. <laughs> Amen. Thank you. Okay. So I guess I, so I've always written. I've always been okay. a writer. Like I used to write stories for my for my for my siblings. I have six brothers and sisters. Five of them, four of them are younger than me. Um, so I used to write stories, and I remember. So my family came from Alabama. So when mm-hmm. they came during the great migration of black people from the South to the West, mm-hmm. Los Angeles. So it was, it was in many ways, like an immigration story. They said, you're going to be successful. You're going to be successful. You're going to be a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer, or something like that. Sure. So writing was never an option. So mm-hmm. right. And for me, even now, writing is a privileged activity. You have to have money to write. You have to have time. You have, you know, to think and, you know, yeah, no matter yeah. how, poor you may be or how you know you're writing on you know time you could be doing something else and especially as a parent um so when i was forced to write um was a day after my son was born or the week after my son was born i immediately knew that something was wrong with him it was another one of those hunches like something's wrong um, because my daughter is 364 days older than he is. So they were born within a year. Wow. Um, 
And then, but I noticed that he wouldn't smile. Like he, he, his muscles wouldn't get him to smile. He wouldn't like rub his eyes, you know, like babies do, you know, just and sometimes you have to sure. put like socks on their hands so they don't scratch. Right. But he wasn't doing that. And he was like super floppy. And I remember thinking it occurred to me in one of these dreams, like, I think he's going to die. I think my mm. son is going to mm. die. So I was up at the computer typing in you know what could it be i found like floppy baby syndrome there's a syndrome called floppy baby where their oh, wow. hands just mm. sort of and their legs Goodness. you know kind of um just sort of flop on the side and and then pretty soon you know because if you go down this sort of rabbit hole of of web md you're like sure so it was oh, talking Lord. about how you know sudden infant death syndrome mm-hmm. and i thought oh my gosh my baby he's gonna die and and it was like, it was panic inducing. And, and I remember reading some of the stories about mothers who put their daughters down, for instance, they went back and then mm-hmm. their daughter was gone. So oh, my wow. thinking was, I'm just not gonna put them down. So I mm. bought one of those beds so you don't roll on your baby. Right. You know, like mm-hmm. between my mm-hmm. husband and I. And I would go and I went to my doctor because there's these things called well baby, well baby visits where you have to go back every yep. week and then it's it gets longer, it's further apart. Um, and every time I would say there's something wrong with my baby, he's not behaving. And they kept telling me, no, he's fine. He's reaching all of his steps. He's gaining weight. And I was like, OK, and then I'll go back the next week and then I would start going in between visits. And then pretty soon they were like, Natasha, you know. There's nothing wrong with your baby, but we think there may be something wrong with you. You may be having postpartum depression. And I was like, Mm. I wanted to believe them. I wanted to believe them for my son's sake, but I had been depressed before and I knew it was different. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so I just started this regimen. And when I went back to work, because, you know, you get your 12 weeks. No, I didn't even have 12 weeks off. I had to go back Mm. to work as a lawyer and I asked my husband who was home. I said, can you stay when you, when he's with you, can you just walk around holding him? Because if he dies, I don't want him to die alone. Oh, wow. And Mm. so he would do that and I would come home and then I would hold him. And and that was just how we did things. And I remember going to my last doctor's appointment um, and there was a doctor, he's called a locum. His name was Dr. Goldfarb at Kaiser. And I remember being so mad when I saw him because I was like, now I have to start all over again with all the symptoms that my son has had. So they'll take me seriously. And then he was like, can I hold him? And I didn't want him to hold him. I was like, I'll hold him with you. Can you just look? I was so distrustful at that point. And he, and he just started looking at him. He goes, I want to do this one test. And it was a urine test. And then he says, I'll have the results in a couple days, but I suspect a certain issue and we'll know for sure. So I was like, okay. Mm. But I remember before then I tell this story because the week before then I was walking down the hallway with my son. It was like 10 AM. We had a big picture window and the sun was coming in and I was holding my son, walking him through the hallway. And then all of a sudden it was night and, and I've never had like a daydream or I don't even know what it's called. Like I don't have language for it, Sure. Um, but it was nighttime. I remember I was standing in the woods in Alabama and I remember there was the tree there. It was a full moon and I saw this girl running past me. She was wearing a yellow dress. It had blood on it. And I was so terrified that I remember thinking I didn't wake up. I'm still dreaming. 
I'm not standing in my hallway holding my son. I'm still asleep. So everything is fine. And this terrible thing happened. Mm. And, and then it ended. And I remember my, my husband got up. He goes, are you okay? I was like, I'm fine. Can you hold our son? His name is Ashley. I said, can you hold him? I need to write down what I just saw. Mm. So I wrote mm. it down on this little scrap of paper. And I didn't know what to do with it. I put it in the drawer. And then a few days later, they called me and they said, your son has a problem. Um, and it was because his brain can't get rid of a certain chemical called GABA. It's what mm. is normally like date rape drugs have it, like Ruhypnol and stuff like that, that makes people woozy. And, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. So, that. so we had to do blood tests and all this other stuff. And then they confirmed it. So, so now my son is 15. He couldn't walk until he was four. He could run when he was six. At now at 15, he has about 22 words, but wow. he has like retardation. He must low muscle tone, things like mm. that. So, but mm. I knew that then, um, but it was that dream that, that I had and it ended up becoming chapter one of Grace. It's the opening mm. chapter of my novel Grace. And mm. the rest of the book didn't come like that. I had to like, I got in a sure. class called Novel Writing One, How to Write a Novel. <laughs> and then I ended up teaching that. I now teach um, one, two, and three for UCLA. And I'm teaching at Yale this summer. Um, but I didn't know at that time that God had a plan for all of it. And I know that mm. it's God because I feel like it was given to me. I wasn't trying to be a novelist. You know, there's yeah. people that go their whole lives like, I want to write. I want to. It wasn't my life. So even now when I see, like when it came out and I'm in Time Magazine and People Magazine and Reed's wife is calling me, just <laughs> be like, oh my God, do you know you're in People? I was like, I That's know, right? right? It's kind of weird, That's right? <laughs> you know, and just, oh, and on, in the New York Times and I'm standing there like superhero and I'm like, this is crazy. <laughs> but it wasn't. Yeah. It was God. It was God like turning me this other way. So I started writing because I wanted to honor whatever it was. I didn't know what it was. I still don't have language for what happened. People, when I travel the world, people will tell me, you know, well, we think it's this, you know, this is what that means. And I'm like, okay. Sure. (laughs) Right. Yes. Whatever you say. That's just what happened. What happened (laughs) is, is the opening of grace. And then the perishing, it happened again, and it became chapter 35 of the perishing, which was a different mm. story and a different novel. So I just knew I had to write it. So all of it for me yeah. has just been walking out something that felt I was cool. Will you remind me real quickly, is 35 the final chapter? No, no, no. Um, 35 is the... Oh, so I'll let, I'll let the novelist yeah. tell you what 35 no, no. <laughs> so, is. So in the perishing, it's chapter three is almost towards the end. Yeah. Sure. And my editor was like, no, we got to cut that chapter. I was like, no, we're not cutting that chapter. That chapter is like the spark for this book. Besides my questions about Jesus saying these people aren't going to die. Sure. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. Chapter 35, Nathan, was the um, the the story that Sarah is telling about uh, is it first husband? It, it's the the I know it's the the Chinese individual who is brutally oh, murdered yep, um, yep. from the and and so it's that story and and what I so with apologies Natasha I was trying to do some very last minute homework to you, your your novel has a lot of layers. What I love about it is that there are rewards to connecting dots. Oh wait a second, this was mentioned back in chapter. 
12 and now it's coming back. And I didn't even know. And I was talking to Nathan beforehand because I was like, there are some things in it that are just expressed and you don't realize it's a mystery to be solved until chapter 37 tells you like, oh, wait a second. That was, I didn't realize anything else was going on to that. And that's just, that's impressive craft. Um, so, but that was one of the things that I was trying to do some homework to figure out like, okay, I think this was first husband. And I think this was this other story. And so forgive me if I get some of those details wrong. You're going to have to correct me on it because I was, I was trying to do my homework. And I don't no, know if I passed. So I wanted it to be something that people think about because novels, for me, the things that I think most intensely about are, are horror movies, are science mm. fiction, where I feel like they're really engaging the watcher, the viewer, even the reader. You know, you're paying mm. attention. And novels sometimes just they want to tell you a story, you know, they tell the story, but I want right. to, or the emotion or whatever, but I wanted it to engage the way that I feel engaged when I'm watching Star Trek or I'm watching, mm -hmm, I don't mm -hmm, know, something mm -hmm. like that expands. I don't know. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, so, it's so, it's so funny. I'm sorry to cut you off. It's so funny, but just observing like, uh, I have not been able to get to grace yet, but did of course finish the perishing, perishing for this conversation. And, you know, I know enough through reading and watching genre material for decades at this point. Um, my wife is a bit more analytical brain and, and, and doesn't really, she just doesn't have time for, for, you know, kind of cerebral, uh, I'm going to use the phrase science fiction. That's not exactly what the perishing is, but you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I remember starting the perishing and it's so funny. This is both compliment and, uh, and how I interpreted it in the moment, <clears throat> but I started it uh, on a trip before Christmas and I made the mistake that I'll occasionally do of like thinking, Oh, I'll just start it and get a few pages in and kind of, because I, I tend my reading time is usually right before I go to bed, like mm -hmm. the, the, the house is finally settled and I can kind of just have a little bit of me time with whatever book I'm reading. And and usually that's fine. But the opening of the perishing is so wild in the best way. Right. I was <laughs> like, huh. I really should have set aside more time because I'm really not totally, I, I, I kind of loosely get it because I understand the trappings and conventions of genre storytelling, but I really don't know what I'm talking, what I'm, what I'm not supposed to be uh, comprehending right now. The good news is it all makes sense. So, you know, any listener don't <laughs> receive that as the positive thing. It's, it's just sort of in those, uh, um, those conventions and trappings, but it was so funny. Uh, cause I just know my wife will occasionally, um, if I try to get her in on a, a loosely, you know, kind of labyrinthine or, or complex sort of mythological story based thing, she's like, ah, no, I'm done. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's, it kind of wrote its own story. So the thread of the whole book is that she keeps meeting the same person. So, yeah. so I guess the, the short story is she's always black. She's not always a woman. So throughout mm. time, that's the one thing she's always like, sometimes she's a man, sometimes she's a woman. So she's always black, always, and she's going through history. Mm -hmm. So it's a historical fiction novel in it, in that it tells the true history. So you have like um, history in the United States, specifically the history of Los Angeles, of black mm -hmm. LA. So the first chapter, once you get to chapter one, is that LA has always been brown. Um, mm -hmm. and it has no reason to exist. So unlike every other great city, Boston, Philadelphia, New York, 
LA has no natural port. It has no water. It ha- There's so many things that it doesn't have, no strategic location, but it would rise anyway. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and it's about how having no safe place and having a, having, you know, or having no safe place and having very little are the fuels of the greatest imaginations. And that's why Los Angeles rose. And that's why mm-hmm. she, and so she, so that's the setting of the whole story on chapter 35, the nightmare or the, the real dream that I had was um, I woke up in the middle of the night. So it wasn't a daydream. I wasn't walking. I was asleep. I woke up. And in this dream, I was a character. So this is true story. I was a character in this dream. I was a black woman, but I was a white passing black woman. So I looked Mm -hmm. white to everyone else. Um, And I was in a relationship with this Chinese man. And I just remembered in the dream that I was so in love with him. And when I woke up, I remember like different elements of the dream. I remember the walls, the adobe. I remember the date. I knew it was in the 1800s, mid to late 1800s, because I like architecture. Um, I knew it was Los Angeles. And this terrible thing happened to this Chinese man that I loved. And so I was crying when I woke up. So I started Googling, you know, Los Angeles, 1800s, you know, Adobe, like everything that I could remember and this killing. Um, and then I discovered for the first time, discovered the way Columbus discovered America. I discovered the um, <laughs> the Chinese massacre of 1871, where all mm. these Chinese people were murdered, um, including this doctor who whose name became the person in chapter 35. Wow. That's awesome. Name. Yeah. If. Go, yeah, go ahead. Ask, uh, please, loves please, when I just totally yeah. deviate from the script no, no. here and, and, but it's, we go where the conversation goes. Can you talk? We're matrix. There is no, there's no spoon. Yes. But, um, <laughs> um, talk a little bit for me, Natasha, if you will, about, uh, to get didactic, uh, just kind of your process, like what, you know, uh, uh, Reed is a, a, a published writer, uh, a couple times over and, you know, yours truly has occasional aspirations that direction, but, you know, talk to us about the nuts and bolts of just how, how you, you know, you, you are a mother, you are an attorney, you've got all these sorts of demands on your time and energy and attention. You know, what, what is the literal kind of process for you when you're in the throes of writing something? I write, I guess the best advice, because you know, there's the craft of writing. So if you're a sculptor, you have to know how all your tools work. So you have to know what voice is, you need to know what character is, you know, need to know what setting is, you need to know, you know, dialogue. So there's actually craft tools. Um, The same thing sculptor would come in and start working on something or else you're just working at one of those you know, where you go for the afternoon with the person you love and you make a bowl or something. So anybody, <laughs> the, the point that I'm saying is that- You make anybody, it sound so <laughs> dreadful. <laughs> it can be a wonderful, loving experience. Yes. My, my, eight, my 18th anniversary will be this Monday. I'm going to, that's my, I'm going to propose that. Like, hey, let's go Don't make go a bowl. Don't <laughs> do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess, I guess what I'm saying is like, you have to actually learn how to use your tools as a writer. So I would recommend that. But for me, when I'm in the throes of it is to write when I'm inspired, 
You have to, mm. you know how you get those moments where you're on the road or you're in the grocery store and then a thought comes to you mm-hmm. and you're like, oh, that's good. I'm going to write it down. Mm-hmm. It's actually that moment that you need to be writing. It's mm-hmm. even if you have, so I've written in eyeliner, I have pens in my, in my pocket all the time. I've written on the back of receipts. So those moments of inspiration are the times when you should be writing, because if you wait, you're actually writing the memory of an inspiration not the inspiration sure it's not mm, the same. that's good and you can actually get deeper in into your work by honoring those moments that are given to you hmm. you know it's interesting i uh so nathan graciously and and i thank him for it calls me a published writer i've i've written screenplays so i've had i've had my screenplays turned into movies i have written those are things you've written and they've been published so no no i love you nathan yes i appreciate (laughs) i receive the the compliment i do i receive it um but where i'm going is uh, i've written exactly one novel and it's not publishing ready but to what you're talking about natasha when i wrote it i found that i could never make the time for it so what i did was whenever those moments you're talking about would click, I pulled out the note app on my phone and I wrote on the note app on my phone. And so I would just write then. I could be on a break from work. I could be, you know, just uh, sort of sitting there at home or whatever. I'd be like, oh, yeah, or, uh, you know, just wherever you have a, a free space in your head. And I would write it there and I wrote the entire novel. It's not a long one, but I wrote the entire novel in the notes app on my phone, then would email it to myself and copy and paste it into a Word document. But it was all in the notes on my phone. So what you talk about, about just like, striking when the inspiration is there is so um i think that's so helpful for like i think a lot of people when they want to do something creative or they have the impulse to do it i think they feel there needs to be a little bit more rigidity to the schedule oh this is what and you know everybody's process is unique you find the thing that works for you and if it's working for you then ride that train until it gets to the end of the line is my is my thinking but i think a lot of times people feel as if it has to have some format, rigid structure, anything like that. And, uh, and it was pretty eye-opening to me to be like, well, I, I, wrote the, I mean, it's, you know, it's not long, it's about, but it's about 175 pages all on the notes app on my phone, just piece after piece after piece, you know? I am about to, I'm gonna validate what you're saying. So Grace, my first novel, 70% of it was written on my phone in the notes wow. app. Wow, yeah. And mm, it was, wow. the first draft was 600 pages. So wow. I'm saying, wow. you were yeah, like yeah. not far. And it was just waiting and it was just pieces. Sometimes it was just a thought or sometimes it was Mm -hmm. just, you know, but yeah. Mm, So it's true. But if you're not that person, don't be discouraged because most of your book is not going to come or the parts that you end up keeping is not all going to just come out like that. Most you have to write whether you're inspired or not, but those inspiration Mm -hmm. moments are like, they're Mm -hmm. beautiful. Yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, I want to get in. I have just one more thing that I want to ask about just general process and creativity if we can. And then I want to get into, if you still have some time, I want to get into some nuts and bolts of the perishing, if that would be okay. You just good on time? Are you good? Or do you have a, do you have Um, a out? However you want to do it. I'm worried about Nathan. He's over there. It's like, this is great. This is prime (laughs) time. No, no, no. (laughs) (laughs) So um, in general about so, so and, and this could be a big question. I'm going to try to make it concise. But I think a lot about the relationship of the written word to culture. So that's the subject I'm going to ask questions about. Because, you know, there were days, you know, when the right book could, could change 
the, the, the direction of culture, the right book published at the right moment <clears throat> to literally change everything. And I think about it a lot because obviously there are certain cultural touchstones related to novels. You think about big cultural footprints like the Harry Potter series or something where it's like, okay, before it gets published, people are literally talking about the death of reading. And then suddenly, you know, you get the Harry Potter books and everything like that. But I also think about in terms of now we have a lot of other formats in which written word still has impact, but it's different and it's changed. You have novels and you have the, the, the written word, the written page, but then you also have articles and clickbait titles and Facebook posts and everything. So I'm just, I'm curious and I'm going to try to maybe formulate it in a way that you don't have to wrangle down all of my thoughts in two seconds, but I'm curious as a writer who's doing conversational tours with people promoting perishing and you did it with grace. What, what is your perspective on the relationship of the written word and storytelling in culture today? Like maybe that's a combination of how are readers responding to you? What do you see needs to change and evolve or, or what is happening? I'm just curious in general, your thoughts on that subject, because I think about it a lot. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's a great question, Reed. And I, and it's a big question. And I, and I, and I'm trying to think of the right way to. to sure. I know. I, I just so dropped right. a bomb. No, yeah, <laughs> no, because there's so many, there's so many great bombs in there. So, <laughs> so when I think about writing a novel, so remember I told you, we kind of, I, said how I feel like I'm inspired to write something, you know, like mm -hmm. there's a weird dream or at least there have been for these two. I don't know if it's mm -hmm. going to be the same for the next one. I hope so. I don't know. Um, mm. But for me as a writer, I want to eng engage culture, but I have to stay true to what it is. I think I'm supposed to say, if that makes mm. sense. Like, I'm honoring whatever this message is that I have. So that's, so I'm walking that out. Um, and the part two of that is that novelists are often asked to comment on public issues or cultural issues. So hmm. for instance, the um, um, critical race theory, which is a big hmm. issue is all on writing. So it's not like writing is dead. It's all about books. It's the yeah, battle for sure. which books we get to read to to read in schools and things like that. And it's also the yeah, yeah. The, the platform for the Republican mm -hmm. Party right now is going against mm -hmm. critical race theory, which they may or may not understand. Um, right. So right. when I'm asked recently, so when Condoleezza Rice was on The View and she mm -hmm. said she didn't want, you know, white kids to feel bad for being white because of critical race theory. The LA Times said, Natasha, do you have anything you want to say? You're a novelist mm. on history. Do you have anything you want to say? And I said, you know, I said, it's just so much noise. It's so much noise. And I don't want to explain what critical race theory is. So then the next thing we had, not even two weeks later, was the Virginia governor's race. And that oh, wow. yeah. changed it around was a Virginia governor saying, but what about critical race theory? You're going to make white kids <laughs> feel bad about themselves. So then they were like, wow. Natasha, will you say something unique? So I wrote an essay and I said, <laughs> this is what I want to say about this. Um, because none of history is about making anybody feel bad. It's about 
exposing. It's a revelatory moment for us to see ourselves and make changes so that we can move forward in a healthy way. Otherwise, we're stuck in this cycle of of abusing each other and Mm -hmm. saying, you know what, if we don't talk about it, it didn't happen, is not the way that we mature as a country. And I, right. I gave the example of, I don't know, I don't know, were you old enough for O.J. Simpson's trial? Oh, I, I watched that whole Bronco race. Oh, all okay, the way down you the watched line. the Bronco, the white Bronco. <laughs> okay. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you, by the way, for thinking uh, how lo- young I look. You do look yeah. so young, yeah. you and me. God bless you. Like, oh, come on. <laughs> 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 it's like, come on. Okay, so... <laughs> But so I I talked about that. It seemed, you know, like it wasn't um, connected. But for me, it was because I remember that whole trial um, thinking they had all this DNA evidence, his blood and stuff on Mm -hmm. on the scene. And then I remember the defense saying, if the glove doesn't fit, you must have quit. And they kept saying that. And I was like, yep. And so when OJ put his big old hand, tried to shove it into that crumply little isotoner glove and it didn't fit. And I was right. like, nope, the glove didn't fit. You must, <laughs> you know, like that was the one thing. That's some good that, marketing. That every, yeah, everybody was like looking at the glove. They forgot about the DNA, the blood, the cuts because the glove didn't fit. And so that's what I feel like when we talk about one part of history, we're ignoring so much relevant details is not to make anybody feel bad it's just to right. say here we are we need to come to the truth and all of us have yeah. a responsibility so even in a courtroom as a defense attorney it's not my job to find justice it's not the prosecutor's job to find justice or just the judge or the jury it's all of us working together we find whatever the truth is so anytime yeah. we're shutting down areas and saying we don't want to talk about that evidence we just want to focus on it doesn't we don't get the right result and we're stuck in a circle in a unhealthy cycle of harming each yeah. other we can't move out of yeah, can you know you you've, you've kind of cracked open the doors on some uh, on my imagination a little bit. I've I've had um, a conversation recently. I use a phrase, and sometimes I've used this phrase, and the and the person will come back to me and go like, "Oh wow!" And sometimes I've used the phrase, and I have right pissed somebody off, and like we get into a small fight. Um, but the phrase that I use, and I've used it probably half a dozen times in the last five or six months, is people will say. Oh, so and so's true colors are showing. To which I will respond, we all have lots of true colors. And that's the phrase that will sometimes either somebody will go, oh, wow, or somebody will go, like, what the hell are you saying? Like, shut up. Like, you know, like whatever, you know, they'll get mad at me, you know? Wow. Because, because on one level, it sounds like a defense of whatever. But what I'm scratching at, and this is just the cobwebby way my brain works, but something rang out from what you said is it's just like, yeah. So these things over here may be what you call justice, maybe what you call nobility, maybe what you call, uh, you know, admirable. That may be true. I'm 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 not saying it's not true. This thing over here that we may call atrocious and awful and that we need to reckon with is also true. <laughs> and that those colors, you know, when 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 I feel that somebody would say, "Oh, 
the true colors of this or the true colors of that. I feel like they want to homogenize either the, the movement or the issue or the person and say, well, that is, I'm, I'm now defining you by this category, whatever I've, whatever I've called that category in my mind. Those are your true colors. And what I'm wrestling with at the moment is the way in which, you know, I had a subject just recently where, you know, uh, there was somebody who normally I had known them to be filled with compassion and filled with grace and, 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 um, you know, warm hearted kindness. And then they faced a situation where they were not at their best and they said some, some pretty crappy things to somebody that I loved. Mm-hmm. And in sort of processing that, I was like, well, you know what? I don't necessarily feel like all of that consistent compassion, kindness, warm-heartedness was just a lie. Maybe it was, but I don't necessarily think that's the simple answer. I think the truth of it is more complicated. Mm -hmm. And part of what is resonating with me about what you're saying about people's sort of responses, want to whittle things down, want to dissect what voices are permitted in the conversation and what voices are not permitted in the conversation and wrestle with this concept of like, well, yeah, but this is a perspective and this is a perspective and this is a perspective. And if we really want to get to closer to something that is true for as many people as possible, we best not like dissect and compartmentalize a whole swath of other communicating voices just for something that fits what's comfortable for us or what we believe is necessary. And I really hope to God that word salad makes sense because sometimes I just go on to a rant and I don't know if it's <laughs> if it's no. really clicking. It but, doesn't. It, I'm it, kidding. Totally. What do you think, Nathan? I thought it. I thought it made sense. I was following. <laughs> well, and something that that is is kind of marinating for me as y'all are talking that that I think is valuable to to have here and why why the written word, why the thoughtful verbal word are all so valuable and need need to be perpetuated societally is the, the scary thing that's happening is we want everything. Mm, we dumb down everything. And so we lose, we lose everything in doing so. So for instance, Natasha, what I heard in your story about CRT res- response, you know, Hey, what's your thought here? It's like, okay, well, what are you after? Like if you, if you're after thoughtful discourse, let's do that. If you're after a clickbait, let's not do that. And it's interesting <laughs> because which is which it kind of sucks because our society definitely tilts away from that uh currently and probably for the foreseeable future and all of our lifetimes um but it's interesting i was just this evening before this conversation on the way home from a thing and i listened to a podcast um i referenced a couple times but kara swisher it's called sway she's a journalist but she had on the uh, newest CEO of the social media app parlor. So it's a convert. It was a conversation about January 6th and, and so on and so forth. Mm. And, and, and it's, you know, it, it's not worth necessarily following all of the rabbit trails I just laid there, but one of the things, and this gets to, the, I think some, some overlap with what both of you are saying, the gentleman who is a person in the world, I would generally not really sync up with, but there are moments where the things he's saying, like, okay, well, that kind of makes some sense, kind of makes some sense, free speech, blah, blah, blah. We don't like censorship, blah, blah, blah. But there was a there was a a crux point that I that really made me bristle. And 
what that crux point was is he was like, well, free speech will always be offensive because she was asking, she was pushing him on like, you know, moderation, social media platforms, like responsibility inherent to manning these things. And he said, free speech will always be offensive. And and in the car, I never do this in the car. I said, no, 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 no. <laughs> like, and, and, and I, I want to highlight that as the overlap for this whole moment, which is to say, read your question of the, the word itself, the written word, the, the, what we speak manifests into the world, what we speak, what we write. And so a thoughtfulness is required and to, to, to say something. So to me, reductive. And if I can use the word stupid as, um, free speech will always offend to me. All I hear is I'm a bad faith person who wants to, to perpetuate, uh, my sort of bad faith arguments, uh, and not really engage in thoughtful dialogue with an interest in a coming together. And, and I think that's an important point to this, to, at least to me, as I'm sort of absorbing what y'all are saying, what is the goal? right? What is the goal? Because the goal matters. And, and if the goal is, well, I want everybody to be able to say what they want to say because, and naturally it's going to, you're going to get your feelings hurt, but that's just free speech. Like, well, one, I think there's a falsehood there, but two, that's a really crappy goal. I mean, it's just, mm-hmm. it's just bad mojo in the world, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Nathan, that was it's true. Everything you've just said, that's what I want to say. Just like <laughs> everything that you've said is, is completely true. And we don't have the patience to right. have the conversations yes. that we need to have. And like Reed was saying, if everybody can just say their opinion, the value of it isn't just to hear the opinions is so that we can then ask the next follow-up question, the next right. thing that pushes us forward. Maturity is about moving forward. It's not enough just for everybody to drop their bombs and then go home. It's to then ask the next mature question and the next mature question. And that's actually how our law and our culture is set down, is laid down. Like everything builds on the next thing. So you can't go backwards. You have right. to move forward. So yeah. for instance, when you talk about first amendment, when people say it's my first amendment right i can say what i want free speech they're actually first amendment is about it only deals with the government's ability to not interfere with what you have to say they cannot kill you they cannot put you in jail we are the only country in the world that has the first amendment not england you say something about the queen you could be thrown into prison Mm-hmm. Um, not Australia. So what was hilarious to me is when they didn't want vaccines a long time ago, you know, at the beginning of this pandemic or mass, mm-hmm. people in the Christian community who lived in Australia, you know, Hillsong and all that were like, it's my first amendment, right? And then people <laughs> are sending me stuff. Like, they know they don't have the first amendment in Australia. Mm. And like, but Christians in America are like, it's sure. their first amendment right to say, you know, and now they're charged with, you know, inciting a riot in Australia. I'm like, you guys need to just not advise your Australian Christian <laughs> brothers and sisters. Stop talking. Because yeah. they don't have that there. So when I'm, if I say something that's offensive to you, Nathan, it has nothing to do with free speech or First Amendment. Like, there's no protection. It's right. about the government's ability to throw your ass in jail, excuse my right. life, 
or no, kill you. Like I've thought similar things. Yes. <laughs> That's what journalists journalists die a lot around the world more than Christians think they do. You have journalists being killed all yeah. around the world for what they say. So there's yeah. not even an understanding of what that means. And just being offensive is not has right. nothing to do with this. Right. Thing. It's the red herring. If the glove doesn't fit, you must acquit. Oh, that must yes. be. It. That's not actually a law. Yes. That's not actually right. a rule. You just made that up. It's a marketing. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, so we can't even have an adult conversation. That's why when they asked me, what do you want to say? I was like, I need to think about what I want to say that's different because I want to be able to look on it 20 years from now and know that it's still true. Because if yeah. something is true, it's true today, tomorrow, the next day. Like I mm-hmm. want to be as close to Jesus in my walk as I possibly can. I don't want to offend anybody intentionally. You know, right. but we have to be at a place where we can ask the next question. So if people, I have friends who are like, our children can't breathe, you know, take their masks <laughs> off, they can't breathe. And then I'm like, wow, then if that were true, every Halloween, we would have all these dead children. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, like I've never seen that. I've never seen that. Like, Stop with your like, logic. They're walking for four or five hours. I'm like, yeah, Come on, yeah. We gotta yeah. get out of yeah. the marketing and go to the. Can we just yes. have a conversation? Can we ask mm-hmm. the next question? And well, yeah. and you're. I'm gonna. I'm going to uh, retire clunky segue and make a deft segue here. Uh, uh, you'll love this. So. What you're saying reminds me of In the Perishing, a book by Natasha Dion. There's a moment in the middle, and it's one of the spots I did highlight, but I couldn't pull it up real quickly, where Lou is, I believe the conversation is with the woman who was, she had her own newspaper, right? She had her own sort of publishing uh, uh, company. And the comment she makes, and I'm paraphrasing apologies, but the sentiment is the same, which is to say, she tells Lou, people are, people want to make facts as important as their opinions about facts. And mm-hmm. I was like, come on, girl, come on. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and it was funny. I was sharing with this, uh, this with Reed today. I had to remind myself a couple of times because I don't know if y'all are like this when you're reading a book or novel or whatever, you know, that I'm, I'm not thinking about the world in which the novel was written, right? I'm just, I'm just kind of absorbing the story and reading it as I go and enjoying it from that standpoint. But there were several moments I kind of tripped and I was like, when was this written again? Oh yeah. Like a few months ago, (laughs) (laughs) just because of some of the impressively topical stuff. So no, I I am, we, we, we could talk for hours on, on the concepts of, but I think Reed, you might echo let's, let's move into the book a little bit, but just this idea of, I am scared of how dumb we are and, and, and are getting and, and our unwillingness to listen, mm, our unwillingness to, to engage thoughtfully, uh, with just about anything, but to be so easily incited to fear, uh, uh unnecessarily. So, so in the spirit of that, <laughs> well, and I want to, oh, yeah, go ahead. No, 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 no apologies. You, you go Natasha and then I'll, I'll, I'll throw something in. So it's when Nathan was saying, you know, sometimes you're like, when was this written? And I love that you have that, you had that reaction because I get probably three emails and multiple Instagrams or Facebook messages about one particular paragraph in which I talk about masks. You know, they're like mm-hmm. in the 1930s and they're talking yeah. about, you know, people don't yeah. want to wear masks and thing like things like that. And the whole book is about the cycle because we're living the same. <clears throat> 
over and over again. So in the 1930s, it was polio. In the 1800s, it was smallpox, um, flu, things like that. So the first time there were anti-vaxxers was with the smallpox in the Mm -hmm. late, late 1800s. But the first time they wore masks was in 1819 with the Spanish flu. Mm-hmm. And which killed one third of the world's population, and they were Im- trying to enforce masks. But did it? I know, <laughs> okay, I'm kidding. I'm I know, kidding. but did. But <laughs> what's funny is it's the exact same arguments. It's like yes. how can we yeah. still be stuck in this two hundred years later? Like there are no, yeah. you know, let our kids breathe. It's like reading from a history book from the eighteen hundreds. The same arguments, yeah. same newspaper. And it's and when you're saying the dumbing down, like I didn't even have to look at today. I was just wow. I strictly pulled from newspapers in the 1800s, 1930s, and they're arguing the same thing. Oh, absolutely. You so so one of it might be the number one, but it is absolutely top three. My favorite things about your novel is. That it is firmly set in the 1930s and feels like it was set yesterday. And it's true, historical occurrences that are specifically referenced are set in place and time. But one of the conversations that I feel like I have a lot with people when they bring up something like uh, a vaccination uh, a, a sort of hesitancy or, or, or maybe a strong antagonism towards that. I usually try to engage that conversation sympathetically because I try to presume that people have their own reasons for getting to the conclusion that they do. And maybe there's something rooted in, you know, personal history or, or, or maybe, you know, something because I certainly come armed with all of the things that have happened to me and my friends. So I try to be sensitive to that part of it. But where I will usually bristle is when people will say, well, we've never seen anything like this. That's when I usually sort of raise my hand and go like, well, uh, and, and I, I feel a little bit proud that I did this before reading The Perishing, but I can definitely point to a book after reading The Perishing <laughs> that, that like, you know, I, I try to tell them the same exact thing as you like, no, we went through this with smallpox. We went through this. My mom caught polio and she, in, in, when she wrote the book about her life, just her personal story, she talks about that a little bit, but she caught polio, survived it, did not have any long-term uh, notable health uh, detriments related to it, um, but there was a time there where they absolutely thought she was not going to make it, and she was she was because she was a child. Uh, I forget her exact age, but she was uh, definitely preteen when she caught it. And you know, all of the conversations around vaccinations, all of the conversations around like what do we need to do for public health crisis, and it really just strikes this nerve in me how we are so. And I'm coming to a question about the perishing, or maybe a topical launch pad. We so feel like we're unicorns in the world, like, you know, oh, this time, this place, America, us, our technologies, and we so feel like we're unicorns. And I don't often sort of want to hold up the Bible and like smack somebody in the face with it, but <laughs> that's good. That's good. But, <laughs> but when Ecclesiastes talks about there's nothing new under the sun, like there's, there's nothing new. And when I absorb a passage of scripture like that or think about something like that, I think about conversations like this, where we think about like, no, 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 we can look back. And one of the things I love about it, to be really specific, one of the things I love about it is you have a character who is rooted in the late 1800s because 
they are an immortal. I say they because sometimes they are a man, sometimes they're a woman, but <clears throat> they, you know, we meet them as Sarah 90 years in the future from now. Mm-hmm. And we meet them as Lou 90 years ago. And this connectedness separated by 180 years and then 90 years past that from 1930s, you know, earlier as well. And I just really was very fascinated and taken with the connectedness of these generations and how much walking through this looks and feels so much like walking through things now. And before listeners get upset or think I'm not thoughtful, like, yes, I know technology changes. Yes, I know things have gotten, you know, certain technology or uh, individual amenities and developments and inventions have changed. It's, it's certainly easier, technologically speaking, now than it would have been in the 1930s. But when you're talking personal people's struggles, when you're talking cultural shifts and, and arguments, when you're talking how one person walks their way through the world, it's very, very much the same. It's very, very much like looks and feels the same. So I probably should have been a better host and formulated a question for that, but I'm just going <laughs> to cross the grenade to you to say, like, what are your thoughts on that? Maybe just talk about that element it. of the book. Yeah, okay, no, cool. that's that's it makes me happy to hear you say that because I wanted to show the cycle because I believe mm-hmm. that we're not seeing the cycle because we think we're new. We think it's not true that everything's new under the sun. We think we're coming onto the stage brand new and that there's no consequences of our actions and that there is no before us and or after, but right. they're just cycles repeating. And my prayer is that people will read it and say, am I caught in this cycle? But also mm. read, now I have to say, my agent was someone who challenged me on my views mm. of the vaccination. She says, Natasha, wow. in the wow. first draft, she says, I think you, I want you to read this again because it doesn't sound like you. And I was oh, like, wow. what do you mean it doesn't sound like me? I wrote, she goes, <laughs> I want you to read it again because usually you come with a very a sympathetic ear you try to see she goes i want you to read it again and when i read it it was very hard on people who were anti-vaxxers and mm, because i was like mm. in a moment it was almost like an angry facebook post and it came oh, out very sure. it was wrong and i was she says i'm not asking you to change it i just want you to read it so i was like all right so i had to pray about it like before i even <laughs> changed it i like i need this because sure. i was really angry. I'm like, because I have a son who's disabled. I have my 81 year old black mama with me. These are all people that are high risk of dying from COVID. Right. So I'm like, why don't people do what's best? I don't get it. Why all of a sudden they don't trust science, but if they get COVID, they want to go to the hospital, see those doctors who prescribe the vaccine in the first place. I don't get it. Like, so I was very angry, but I had to take a step back. And, you know, I don't know if you knew, but I was in seminary. I am in seminary Mm. right now. Oh, I don't think I I don't think we talked about. Of course you are. (laughs) (laughs) She's a zookeeper, too. It's a hobby. I wasn't going to bring it up. I was just going to leave it. Okay, so I'm in seminary. I am. (laughs) But I, but. (laughs) You're good. You're good. I'm playing with you. No, no, no. That's so, that's lovely. That's wonderful. So I was, you know, and we were talking about, you know, vaccines and things like that. And um, and I have and I'm studying to be in psychology, how to work with mm. people, how to be better, be a better listener and active listener. So in right. that role, I'm a therapist. So I'm already in doing clinical work. So I'm seeing patients. Oh, wonderful. Um, yeah. So 
this one patient, she's a complete anti-vaxxer. And we, I remember what, and you know, as a therapist, it's not about what I want or what I believe it's listening to that person. And that's what yeah. I was doing. And it was the first time during this time where I had to rewrite this section that I began to understand. She was a client who had been molested, who mm. used, who had restraining orders against um, men who had raped her. It was, it was, it was pretty wow. terrible. And I remember yeah. she saying, I don't want the government to make me put anything else into my body that I don't want. I've wow. had this my wow. whole life. Mm -hmm. I have been molested. Mm -hmm. I've been raped. I can't, I can't even be a parent to my child and make a choice for my kid. Everything is taken away from me. I'm going to hold on to this one. This one's mine. I don't wow. have to do that. Wow. So for her, and it was the first time that I was like, oh. mm -hmm. and she's, mm -hmm. and then I understood, like, it was like, there was, it was a revelation moment, not just that she said that it wasn't just an emotional connection. You know how they say, you know, we get so emotional and we think the emotion is the answer, but it's only part right. of it. Right. What I understood is that we treat people so poorly who choose not to get vaccinations. We treat them like they're stupid. We treat mm. them like they're le that less than, and that's what no one wants to be is the idiot in the room, which right. Right. forces people to push it away even more. Are you calling me an idiot? Now they're an idiot. Right. You know, like, and especially in the Christian community where you know how they treat intellectuals anyway. Like if you go to school, and oh, you think you're so smart and better than everyone. Right. And then now right, you're right, really right. telling them something. And it's all mm -hmm. those insecurities get just brought up and now they're more defensive and we're not actually getting any further because we offend yeah. so we offend across the aisle so it's not just oh, absolutely them offending me it's me accidentally offending them and i think there's a moment in this conversation that we're talking about mm -hmm. that we have to stop calling people stupid or unpatriotic or all these things without even listening so that we can move to the next right. question and right that's part of the problem yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Like the thing that has always, <clears throat> I say always as if I came out of the womb with these kind of thoughts. Hopefully, you know what I mean? It's possible you did. You did. <laughs> I know, right? Whatever's next. It's possible you came out with those ready to go. <laughs> that's, that's funny. I appreciate that. But I think like one of the things that I think about a lot is the way Christ would respond to binary yes or no questions. And he would nearly always respond with another question yeah. and would exercise his agency to not answer yes or no, but instead to ask them something that was underneath. And I think one of the things I'm wrestling with now in my own life is how to really hear, because I struggle with it sometimes. I have this tendency where I really love to make people feel better or if somebody is feeling, I really struggle with it a lot, like with my wife and my son, where like, I really want to make somebody feel better. If they've, if they've expressed a thing to me, I want them to walk away from their interaction with me lighter and less burdened, but I don't always have that power, nor do I always have that right. And I don't always, I certainly do not always have the, the there was something that I wrote in a, my poetry days are kind of past me, but a poem that I wrote in a, in a, a, a something very, very long ago, I said, the door's not always open and I've never had the key. And that's the way I feel like 
in these kinds of conversations, sometimes I'm not invited to fix it. And sometimes I'm not invited to make it better. And I sure don't have like the, the handle in my pocket. I don't have the key in my pocket to unlock it for people. And I think one of the things I'm wrestling with in that recognition of myself and that journey is trying to, one of the ways, one of the multitude of ways I would like to be more Christ-like is finding that path to better questions. Oh, vaccine, no vaccine. What's the better question? And, and I don't have it. I'm not about to drop a bomb, but like, what's the better question in all of that? And, and I don't know it and I pray and I seek it, but like, what's the better question in all of that? This policy, that policy, this person, that person, this direction, that direction, what's the better question underneath all of that? And, and I feel like the more times that I position myself in seeking the better question, there's a kind of, this is my experience, there's a kind of automatic humbling that happens because in seeking a better question, I automatically do not posture myself as if I have the answer to it because I'm still trying to figure out what question I'm supposed to be asking. Right. And, um, and that, has been, that has proven helpful from time to time in trying to just be in the moment and what it has proven helpful doing is being able to hear somebody else more effectively. I had an entire, I won't share who the family member is, though I don't think they'll ever listen to this. I had an entire hour and a half conversation with two family members over Christmas. They both are in the op opposition to vaccine posture. We had a 90 minute conversation where nobody yelled at each other. Nobody screamed. I don't think anybody got really mad. It was, a, it was what we talk about hoping to have a sharing of ideas. I don't even, I don't know if they walked away with different thoughts from what I shared. Yeah. I don't know how much I gleamed or absorbed from what they shared, but I remember walking away from the moment, being a little bit encouraged that the conversation could go for 90 minutes and it didn't walk away angry and it didn't walk away ugly yeah. and it didn't walk away mean. Mm -hmm. We just had the conversation. And a lot of it was rooted in kind of what we're talking about, asking better questions, receptive, active listening. Mm -hmm. I, I want to hear what you have to say. And I know that sometimes, depending on the engagement of the other person, that's not always possible. I love that when the scripture says, live at peace with other people, it says, in as much as it depends on you. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. like it says it right before that, you know, live at peace with others in as much as it depends on you. Because sometimes, you are not going to be, I'll share the opposition to the story and then we'll see where the conversation goes. Uh, opposing to that, somebody that I love recently had an interaction where they were made to feel very stupid about something. They asked a good question mm -hmm. and the person that they were speaking to, they were made to feel very stupid for asking that question. And so they were trying to process Man, like I was just, I was just trying to ask this. I just wanted an answer on this. And now suddenly it's turned into this personal attack and I don't understand. And it got all, it got all weird. Mm -hmm. And when they were done with it, my advice to them was that what I think you should do is take a few minutes and say F them. <laughs> and yeah. not because, not because you're dismissing them from the, for the long term, but you need to sort of center a little bit that they don't have that kind of power over you is what I was trying to accomplish in the moment, you know? Yeah. And I, th I think sometimes the conversation around how we get to a healthy place for ourselves and how we get to a healthy place in the conversation requires a lot of sort of messiness. And sometimes it's going to be not what we wish it was. Mm -hmm. Hopefully we have the maturity to learn from it. 
that's another thing to bring it back into the perishing. And then I'll invite your thoughts to this next part is specifically, this might sound like a non sequitur, but I promise it's related specifically the role of violence in, and, and Nathan hasn't read grace, but grace also has violence plays a very particular role in grace. Um, I can share because I think it's on the dust jacket. It's narrated by a ghost who has, who has been violently killed and uh and there are additional moments of violence that are crucial to the narrative as it progresses i won't spoil too much because nathan and maybe most of our listeners haven't read it but um i wanted to know a little bit about the relationship of violence in the perishing and in your work writ large because you know lou is a a reporter uh, writing about deaths and and writing you know so talking sometimes about people who have died from natural causes but there's Violence plays a really interesting role in the perishing. So I'm going to shut up and just say, hey, talk to me about the role and the the nature of violence in the narrative of the perishing as you were crafting. Yeah. Oh, great question. All of this is great. I'm like, yeah, yeah, right, yeah. That's what you <laughs> No, yeah. Like all of it, all of it. I'm trying to bring it together. So there is a line in at the beginning of the book that says we're all on the verge of somebody else's violence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. all of us are in this predicament and we all know it. You know, we know that something can go wrong. So violence is real. Mm -hmm. It exists in the world. A lot of the violence that I write in this book are based on cases that I've represented um, Mm -hmm. people on like i've been asked you know where does this dark just come from i'm like you know it's set in this is 1865 um is grace this one's 1930 Mm -hmm. the perishing but i'm like these this violence like especially the rape scene i wanted to distinguish between a date rape and a violent rape the kind of rape Mm -hmm. that leave women torn from one end to the other forever you Mm -hmm. know Mm -hmm. unhealing infected all the time and there's no place, you know, if you can imagine a smiley face from, that's the kind of, there's that kind of violence. And then there's right. rape, rape, shame, violence. And when I was writing the violent scene in Grace that had to deal with that rape, I, my editor said, Natasha, if you write, if you leave this line in here, readers will close the book. Wow. Yeah. Oh, wow. Wow. And I was like, but that's what happened. And his name is Dan. My editor's name is Dan. I was like, but that's what happened? How? And he's like, you can't say that. The things you know, you cannot put down there. It's not palatable. And I was just like, okay. So then, you know, and so I had to soften a lot of the language um, wow. Wow. and the violence and the things, you know, the things that I know. So I want it. And that kind of takes me back to your first question. When you talk about somebody going to someone asking an honest, sincere question and getting and made to feel stupid. Yeah, and that's right. to say, not everybody can handle your darkness. Mm, mm-hmm. Not everybody can handle your question. Just because right. they're a pastor, just because they're a friend, a neighbor, it doesn't mean that they're qualified or capable mm-hmm. of handling your darkness. Not my editor, when I have to write about that dark moment that I wanted to let go of, it was right, too much for right. that. So even in a therapy room, when I'm talking to clients and they're like, I can't believe, you know, I told him that I was molested. And he said, well, couldn't you have told someone? Why would he say that he hates me? I'm like, not everybody is ready as much as they love you and you love them. Not everybody is capable right. 
and we want them to be because we love them, we care about them, right. they're family member, but it's also not fair to them. And, mm. it, and I know that's a huge burden for people who are carrying things, but sometimes right. you right. need help. You need another um, person to be there. Um, yeah. But also active listening, there are tools, just like writing, there are tools for active listening, right? You have to, mm -hmm. and the worst thing you can actually do to someone, and I learned this only because I'm a therapist and my mentor is like 70 years old. He's this old white guy, <laughs> you know, but he's been a therapist for so long. And he was like, and I remember um, I was saying that I wanted to tell my client this one thing. And he was like, if you give your client an answer, you will hurt her. Like the worst mm. thing you can do wow. to someone is to give them an answer. Wow. Think about wow. it that way instead of helping them to process it. Cause it's all a process because if mm. they're living your answer, they're living your life, not theirs. It's not one that they learned. So he goes, you're yeah. going to hurt mm. them by giving them an answer. So when they say vaccine, no vaccine, it hurts them to give mm. them, you know, you ask them questions, let them ask you questions. It's not that you're manipulating. It's that you're right. giving them to think for themselves. Um, mm. So when my client asked me, should she leave her abusive husband? I said, what do you think? Even though I'm like, right. in my right. head, I'm yeah, like, yeah. Oh, sure. I'm the hills, get your money, get your yeah, kid, you right. know, like, <laughs> right, right, right. Why are you going to, why are you asking me that? What do you, mm. think? you know, and, but that said, when I was, I had to go work with a lot of women who are abused and all of them have the same answer. When they, when I asked them, why did you stay with this man for so long? Because now they're in this home, you know, these unmarked right, shelters. Right. Why, why didn't you leave before? They said, because every time I would say that I was abused or whatever, my social worker or the hospital or my mom would tell me to leave them. And because they told me to leave them, I wanted to stay. So every wow. time, wow. it was like every single time. So I think if people knew how their answers harm people, they would give less. Mm. Yeah. Oh, man, what a profound thing that you it's, just said there. It's, it's funny. Yeah. Uh, I, I've referenced a few times. There, there was a pocket um, a number of years ago uh, where I was uh, uh, in counseling and and i remember and i'd never been in counseling before and so it was a particularly uh volatile season and and was purposeful to be there and i remember thinking like damn it tell me what to do you know <laughs> you're like when especially when you're there as a client you're you're part of you is desperate now i had at least some sobriety of mind and maturity of of personhood to kind of recognize what was beginning to happen right you know of, of like okay but but we're so for whatever reason acclimated and and acculturated to the the thought that you know a counseling sort of experience is you're gonna go to this person they're gonna tell you what to do it's like well no you have to they can they can maybe guide they can answer your questions to a degree but their role is not to uh, to lead the horse to the water. It's to, to get you to lead yourself as it were. Um, they're a mirror. They're a mirror. Yes. Yes. yes because yes. they bring your inside thoughts, what you're really thinking to the outside. When you're not polite, when you're not kind, when you're not <clears> trying <throat> to impress this person, they become a mirror of your inside thoughts. And then you say, Oh, shit. 
Is right. that, yeah, right. Is, is that what I think about myself? Is that yeah, what I right. am I carrying? That they're so the most effective therapists are mirrored to the things that you're trying to that you say on the inside because we're so mean to ourselves, we're so yes. cruel, and the things that we're trying to hide. Um, so that's a great therapist, and they don't know the answer. So they well, I think yeah, I think it, what what I found, and and then I I've got a question about the book. Um, because you know you you did that too, um, but um, <laughs> is, is 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 what I found and came to really love about my experience in a therapeutic setting was that 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 comprehension that happened at a particular moment of realizing they are for me and this is for me, right? In other words, there is safety here in a way that is not necessarily present in other places, even amongst those who do love me and care for my good well-being. You you come to find, or I I did at least, and and I, to me it's a hallmark of of it being well delivered. Was this is safety and yeah. and what and and you you kind of use it as 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 it is needed for you. Uh, so I don't know this this question keeps jumping out at me and and. I think it's in the spirit of read your violence question in, in, in brief summary, we've alluded to it a bit in the book, but for listeners who haven't read it yet, um, the perishing uniquely is about this character uh, pre- predominantly called Lou, but also Sarah in the future, who is, uh, this isn't so much a spoiler because it's, it's pretty alluded to pretty quickly um, is either when you first started some sort of time traveler. Uh, but what you find is, is more likely just a, a non-dying entity across time um so less a a marty mcfly and more an an ever-present sort of uh being as it were and what i'm interested in hearing from you from a craft from a narrative from a just story standpoint um so lou is for listeners the 1930s iteration of this character and lou as graduates from high school but but uh, wrote for her high school paper, gets uh, on board with, is it the LA Times at the time? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, shortly thereafter and is on the death desk, uh, just meaning she writes about the passing of folks uh, local in the local community. And, and I just find this whole dynamic, this dichotomy really interesting. You have a book titled The Perishing. You've got a character who is effectively undying, who has a deep seeming interest and it may maybe at times she gets bored with it uh but uh, uh this fascination with this profession she puts her hand to not so much journalism but specifically the death desk and listeners if you're if depending on where you're at in the book or if you're going to read the book lou our version of her is unaware of her of, of of what she is until late in the story so you know much of your encounter of her she's ignorant to her true nature uh, uh, with glimpses here and there that don't add up in her view until late. So I'm curious, author Natasha Dion, what do you think is is drives Lou's vocation as not just journalist, you know, who who's who's carving out and painting a picture of a of a community in time, but specifically of the passing of folks. So I'm I'm really curious, kind of what that dichotomy, how that symmetry plays out for you, and what her character drive is there yeah so she so lou is she's 17 about 17 year old years old when she arrives in los angeles 
she has no history. She wakes in an alley. Um, she has no history. She doesn't know who she is. She's put in a foster home. Um, they don't know if something happened to her family. This is a, around the time of the Great Depression where people are getting rid of their children because they can't afford them. Um, and the foster care system was overwhelmed at that time because the Great Depression, the stock market crashed in October of 1929. So this is like 1930. This is that next year. So she's looking for herself throughout the story. She doesn't know that she had who, what her past is. And she gets put on the death desk because there's no place for a black woman on the LA Times in the 1930s as a journalist. So someone who cares enough about her, about her writing, puts her on the death desk because he tells her that writing about the history of a life is the same as telling the story of the future, basically. Like preserving mm -hmm. someone's life, because most people know more about a person by reading the program at the memorial service than they ever did in the life of the person. Right, so right. So he puts her on this death desk and she has to tell the stories of these people who are people of color in Los Angeles who die, who don't get covered at all in the LA Times, who got covered were famous people mm -hmm. um, and, and white people um, who meant something to their paper or to the, the white Los Angeles. Um, and it was the golden age of Hollywood. So she begins telling these stories, not because she chose it, but because she was put there or called there in a way. Um, but because I know we're running out of time and I feel strongly that I want to say this one thing. Because sure. Yeah, please. So yeah. And we're talking so much about different perspectives because I do have a perspective when I write The Perishing about things I think are right are wrong and they're portrayed. I create characters and I have them say things that I wish I could say to people if I ever had a conversation. So that's what characters allow us to do. Um, but I just wanted to give an example because um, recently, the day before New Year's Eve, so New Year's Eve's Eve, I lost a friend. She was a therapist in my office. She was 30 years old. Her name was Hannah. Um, and Nighty, it's, it's N-G-A-I-H-T-E was her last name. Um, mm. She was just a light. She, had, she was this little blonde girl. She was one of three triplets um, in her family. She was the only girl. And she went for a run, New Year's Eve Eve, which was just last week, last Thursday. And she was running out, it was like 6.30 in the morning, 6.45. She ran out in the crosswalk to cross the street and a car ran the red light. Mm -hmm. And she was hit by that car <clears throat> and not just hit by one car. Another car followed oh up my goodness. and hit her and she died on the scene. And someone came and and it made no sense to me. And it's, I'm, we're at, what is this, January 6th. So we're just a few days out. And I was completely in shock when I got the email. Um, yeah. And I say that because I'm telling you this story to remember her, one, because she was a wonderful therapist and a wonderful person, but because we had her memorial service yesterday. Mm. And mm. in that memorial service, all of us talked about her. And I was one of the first people to speak and I told them it was the worst memorial. I've never dreaded going to a memorial and I've been to a lot of them, but this is the first time I've ever dreaded. And I felt bad for saying that. 
I said, I dread yeah, that right. she shouldn't die. She was like the best person. And I said, but you know what? It gives me hope that people on the other side are good people. Like maybe I yeah. have a mm. stick. Maybe I'm the loser for thinking I, I want to hold on to this life because mm. if she, if someone like her would be like, that's where I need to be, not here. And I said, I'm not suicidal. I'm not trying to say any of that. I said, but it gives right. me hope that there's something better because I, I believe she's there. So that was what I said. And I remember the next person, she was like, well, wasn't it rainy that day? Why was Hannah out there running on such a rainy day and cross? And I'm just like, oh my gosh, why would you say that? Are you? And I'm thinking in my mind, right. mm. you know, she's like, it's her fault, you know, it's Hannah. But that was her Jeez. way of processing. She was so angry at mm. Hannah for going mm. on this run at 645 in the morning. So then the next person said, I hate God. And we're all Christian therapists. She's like, I hate yeah. God. Why, if God is so loving, why would he yeah. let this happen to Hannah? I just, you know, and that was the next thing. And one other person was just crying and couldn't speak. But all of us, even though we we're all Christians, witnessed and responded to the same shocking event wholly differently. Mm -hmm. Right. It was mm -hmm. a reflection mm -hmm. of who we were. And none of us were wrong. All of us were expressing mm -hmm. and all of us were go through grief and get to the to where we're supposed to be. But it was the first time I was thinking, this is exactly what it is to live in America. All of us love this place. All of us yeah, love right. each mm -hmm. other. But all of us are responding from our own grief and our own expressions to the same shocking moment. And we have to make space for each other. And that's mm -hmm. what Hannah's, for me, that's what Hannah's life and her tragic, horrible death um, yeah. meant to me. And, you know, and yeah. my 70-year-old mentor was just like, well, you know, we all have to. And he was just very, because his wife is in hospice. He's like, we're just in a period of wintering. We're all winning. Mm. We all just got to be close to each other during this time of hurt and winter, even though we're angry, you know, and he's like bringing it all together. And then he says, Hannah was summer. And he, and that was his memory. And I was like, but I don't want a winter. I want to do something. I don't want to, you know, but all of us, you know, even in our, even in our best intentions, we're all reacting to the same stimulus differently. And it doesn't mean that we're wrong. Right. And that's no, does talking about being quiet and listening mm -hmm. is because that's what we're all doing because it is dark out there and we know it. Everybody, especially Christians, because we're the light of the world, right? And we right, know it, right? Oh my lord, I have so many thoughts. Um, so I want to I want to say three brief things. I'm going to try to keep them brief. Um, and then yes, we are we. I wouldn't say necessarily we're running out of time, but want to be sensitive to listeners. And so we'll, we'll kind of try to find a landing page. We'd stay here for four hours if we could. <laughs> but um, the first thing that I want to say, actually didn't intend to say this initially, is just thank you for sharing Hannah's story. And thank you for sharing that with us, gifting us with how she affected you and how you remember her, because I know that's a precious thing. And so thank you for sharing that. You know, this year, 2021, we have reflected recently in in my family because we had three major moving ons in in our family. Most recently, my wife's mom lost her best friend of like forty plus years, and and it was it was it was a pretty rapid decline. It was to cancer, pretty rapid decline. 
Um, her name was Bonnie and she was just one of the sweetest ladies that you could ever know that you would ever possibly know. And uh, I knew her very, very briefly in the scope of how much my family knew her, but she was precious. She really was. Uh, we also lost my wife's uncle, Tom, and he was, I remember it was such a big deal to me because this is going to sound like a self-aggrandizing story, but it, it's, it's, it's in praise of Tom. When my first movie came out, my first movie, the first movie that I wrote was a grimy, it's called The Victim. It's really graphic. like It's got a lot of explicit material in it. And here I am, little Reed. Anybody who knows me is like, oh, you can't let Reed wrote The Victim. What the? <laughs> you know, like that kind of thing. It's Someone really, get it's really him in gr- therapy. <laughs> it's really, really grimy and ugly. And Writing is without- therapy. That's where all yes. of our sessions are on the yes. page. <laughs> that is exactly that is exactly right. Um, but I remember it meant so much to me because when that movie came out, I even had dear members of my family who I will not call out here because they're not here to defend themselves. But I even had dear members of my family who refused to watch it, who said I should not even own a copy of the movie I wrote in my own house and had like talks with me about that and all that kind of stuff. But my wife's uncle Tom had called me after he and uh, and his wife had watched it and took the time to talk to me about the story and what he liked. And, and it meant so much to me because I had three of those conversations, Natasha. I had three of them when it came out. And one of them was with Tom and we lost Tom this year. Um, the third one listeners have heard about already. And, and Nathan, you'll know, Natasha and I both knew Randy. Randy meant a lot to both of us. And so we lost Randy early in the year. And I've talked about Randy on the show before. And when I think about this, I know it probably feels a bit weird for me to just sort of walk through the death march of people we lost. But I want to I share something with you about your book. Normally, when we start these conversations, we usually start them by saying like, oh, here's my experience of watching this movie. Here's my experience of reading this book. I'm going to probably uh, close down my time by sharing with you my experience of reading your book. Because your book is about an immortal who writes on the death desk. There's a multitude of metaphors in there. And um, as I was reading it, and, and, and kind of as a pitch to listeners to read it, you kind of go through this. And in one way, you kind of feel your, your novel feels for much of its length like you're marching through the biography of this 1930s woman and you're just sort of seeing and experiencing the things as she experienced. Oh, here's a little touch point on the, you know, the, the, the destruction of the, or the, you know, the collapse of the St. Francis dam. Oh, here's this little piece of history over here for Los Angeles. Oh, I, I've heard of Amy simple McPherson before, you know, like there's all these little sort of little touches that just sort of happen along the way, but it feels very biographical and you don't realize until you get to the climax, which I'm not going to spoil for readers that you don't realize when you get to the climax that so much of what you've been experiencing did connect to something. It just felt like somebody was just marching through and it wasn't until you got to kind of this, this, this closure that everything begins to kind of culminate like, oh my gosh, like I referenced it, I think earlier in this conversation where I said like, what felt like somewhat innocuous, not unmeaningful, but didn't feel like a mystery suddenly like, oh, I didn't even know that that was a mystery to be solved. Like the death, the death of that character, I didn't realize that that was connected to a bigger piece of the puzzle until that really powerful climax. But I'm reading it and the energy sort of ramps up about, I forget exactly the chapter, 28, 29, 30. Like it's, 
readers in the who read it from here will know like it's the moment when Lou suddenly gets put into imminent immediate peril like when she when she immediately begins to sort of get in danger the energy just sort of ramps up and it felt very much like the finale of a thriller where i'm just like oh my gosh i'm gonna read it all this through this thing and so much of what is uncovered about the story at that point it connects to you know who she is what she is all of that sort of stuff but then i got to chapter 40 and chapter 40, again, I want to be really careful to let you know what I'm talking about, but not spoil it for readers. <laughs> so um, chapter 40 is the wave goodbye. And I had to put, hmm, hmm, I had to put the book down for a second, just for a second, um, because you talked earlier about a character waves goodbye to everybody they've seen. Everybody, they've people they have done time with, done, done, lived life, lived day to day with, and this beautiful picture of them as they can I use the word evaporate? Is that you know, like, is that you know, the, something akin to like sort of a dissemination, you know? And as they do that, this vision of them simultaneously being connected with all of these people and their former selves and everything, all of this. As disintegration is happening, connection is also happening. I'll say it that way. That as things are disintegrating, things are also connecting. And just this wave says, I hope I see you again. And it made me think about the hope that, that I truly have. We'd love to know what it looks like. I'd love to know, oh, it's that you walk through this gate and then there's Jesus and then there's this. And it, like, we'd love to know what it looks like. I'd love to know what it looks like. But there was such this profound beauty to me of the simplicity of that wave just saying, I hope I see you again. And it makes me think, you shared your story of Hannah. I, I could cite Bonnie and Tom and Randy and a multitude of other people that listeners and us in this conversation could point to and could cite. And this beautiful thing, the hopeful message I walked away with is even as things are disintegrating, things are connecting. And there is a power to that truth. And that even as things are falling apart, there is a coming together because we have, we believe in a God who can restore and we believe in a God who can bring together. And there was a tremendous amount of beauty and hope and profundity in that moment. And I'm really hoping that I didn't read the moment wrong in the book, but that's what it did for me. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, she's like, wait a minute. Is that in my book? <laughs> oh my God. Read it. Read. Oh my gosh. When you said Randy. Yeah, 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 yeah. The night before I found out that he died, I had a dream about Randy. Mm, my wife did too, yeah. That mm. he had already died. And I remember posting it. It was the night before he died. And I remember waking up my husband. And I said, I just saw Randy. He was so happy. He was like so absurdly happy and he was like, and he was well, and he was so happy. And I was like, I get, I said, he must be getting better. He was so happy. And then I went back to sleep and then the, and then the next morning they said he died that morning after. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, but Randy for me is also connected to Hannah. Um, mm -hmm. 
I know you don't know this, so you know I'm not. We're, we're not at the same church anymore. I don't go to the same. Right. Church. No. No. I'm. No. I'm. I'm. We're not there either. Yeah. 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 Right, okay. Right, right. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. and I served there for eleven years, and you know, it was a big deal for me. Randy was somebody who we walked through a lot of things with his own personal things. You know, as a lawyer, as a writer, and helping him. Yeah. And right. the probably. The week after um, I sent the email saying that I was leaving um, mm -hmm. the church, um, Rand is when Randy passed away. Mm -hmm. And after wow. 11 years, not one person emailed me the details. Nobody wow. said Natasha, Randy passed. I found out on social media like everyone else. And this is Lord after serving the size. And I remember being so heartbroken. Sure. Yeah. And I was like, this is the first time I'm talking about this, it's sure, sure, yeah. but, but it was a really hurtful thing for me. And I had to call yeah. other people and say, can I have the details? I said, I'm not even going to go. Like, I've, I'm just, you know, but that was mm -hmm. my reaction at that. Like, for instance, you know, with Hannah, everybody had different right. reactions to the same thing. Sure. Right. Uh, of course. I was yeah. really yeah. hurt and I was really heartbroken. And then, so because of my book, I've been on tour for the last, so I haven't been in the office for three months. And I, had to, mm -hmm. and I told him, I said, I'm gonna have to take a break. I don't know if I'm gonna come back. And this is the end of, I have to say goodbye to my clients. I said, but I'm gonna leave. And when yeah. he passed away, even though I haven't talked to them for three days because it's been sort of a whirlwind with this, with the perishing. Yeah. My old mentor emails me the same day and then texts me and says, are you sitting down? Hannah passed away. Wow. And I, I was like, what do you mean she passed away? What she went back to, where is she? Like, I, I couldn't even process it. And in that moment, I felt like so many different things. And when you were saying, I don't want to self-aggrandize this, but it's like when you're remembering yeah, right. somebody, so much of it is remembering how they touched your lives. Mm, and it was yeah. like, for me, yeah. that was a moment of redemption from the Randy thing. I was like, people don't mm. really care if I know. It doesn't matter what I can contribute because they don't care once I'm gone. Out of sight, out of mind. They could be so nice to me. And, the, you know, 11 years right, ago. Right. So then when he called me, because Hannah passed away and I hadn't been there for three months. Forget, you know, not only been there the whole right, time, maybe right. six months. And for, to be remembered, mm. it's mm. when somebody passed, like, it, it meant so much to me. It was a redemption yeah. moment. So when you talk about Randy, it just, mm -hmm. to me, it is connected to Hannah. Mm -hmm. Sure. Pathway, sure. you know, um, it is connected to the people we lose and how we were both connected to Randy differently. Um, yeah, exactly. So we're yeah, all exactly. Connected. So when we're talking about all the people we're connected to, we're all connected. I believe that and I know it. And by loving each other and caring for each other we can redeem some hurtful things. Hey man, I can, for myself, I can think of no better line to go out on than that, that we are all connected to each other. And by loving each other, we can redeem some hurtful things. I think that is a beautiful and powerful thing. Natasha, this, I, I really have enjoyed this conversation. I hope you have too, because it's, it's been, this has been a real treat, a real delight. Um, I have to. So. I hope I didn't bring down the mood. Okay. Not at all. Oh, no, no, no. no. Like, oh no. <laughs> this is just a normal. This is a normal flow of conversation for us. This is, <laughs> this is, this is, 
this is on this show our listeners are are, are remarkably agile at like oh they were laughing <laughs> cracking up a storm and then 15 minutes later like <laughs> 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 this is kind of how and then we right roll back here. up <laughs> yeah and then just right back into silly um no no this was this was a real delight i, re- I really want to thank you again for just taking so much time with us Thank you for taking time out of your schedule to be here. This was, uh, we, yeah, we've wanted to do this for a very long time. So I'm this honored is, this is a dream. to be here. Dree, thank you both for taking your time with me, Nathan. Thank you, Reed. Yes, what a pleasure. Uh, Where I, I, Reed might have been building this, but I'll, I'll uh, get out in front of it. Where can steal it? Tell our list, tell our listeners where can they find uh, uh, you online? Um, you know what? Give us, give us the details of that. Sure. So on like. My webpage is Natasha Dion or Dion.com. Um, and Natasha has an I in it. Um, so Natasha Dion.com, but I'm at Natasha Dion on Instagram where I'm mostly, um, uh, okay. Facebook where I'm kind of, and then rarely on Twitter, but I'm all those places. Sure. Sure. Okay. <laughs> awesome. That's awesome. Um, well, we, we definitely highly encourage, I would encourage Nathan and would highly encourage, uh, uh, listeners to check out her first novel grace and most especially the recent novel the perishing um buy it buy it new because we want to support good authorship here so but absolutely check out the pair or check it out at your local library always support your local library um so by all means please read natasha's book natasha thank you so much we'd love to have you back at some point just to talk about some fun maybe an evil dead the evil dead something. yeah we'll just have you back yeah, yeah. we'll just have you back to that. talk about <laughs> <laughs> so we'll, we'll have you back sometime just to just to talk about some grimy gory horror movie if we want to but um but do uh, sincerely thank you so much again for spending your time with us uh listeners please All check right, out her i got work. a quick question reed i'm oh, sorry uh yep, natasha nope, nope, you're good not to put not to put you on the spot here but it, it matters to me who tries to make these things matter where if readers want to purchase a book what outlet or forum should they use that most benefits you the creator like what what's a yeah so it's it's traditionally published which means you should be able to get it at any barnes and noble any indie bookstore i would encourage you to get it at indie bookstores um you can get it at amazon you know er, sure. you know all those other places they need whatever. your money yeah yeah but you know whatever you can <laughs> you can get it from your local library but okay i would really appreciate it if you uh, if you support your local bookstore because they need you so yeah mm. No, that's great. That's awesome. No, ab- absolutely. So by all means, check out The Perishing, written by Natasha Dion. Uh, we will have you back as soon as we possibly can. Hopefully it won't be five years of talking about it now at this point. Um, uh, but thank you so much again, listeners. Thank you for sticking with us. I've really loved this conversation. Hopefully you have as well. Nathan, as always, thank you so very much. And as we say on every single episode, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but it is not the end of the conversation. And in that spirit, we encourage you to fear nothing else and to be on your way rejoicing. Listeners, we will be back with new horror content, including the Netflix series Midnight Mass uh, in February. So thank you again for hanging out for this bonus episode. Stay tuned to the usual places to find out where we're going next. And we will see you. Happy New Year, everybody. Natasha, thank you again. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Natasha. Thank you.